word. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Well, we were just talking earlier about how the new year is swiftly approaching. And with the beginning of a new year is often the time when people will begin to compile their list of New Year's resolutions. Although the total number of people in this country still making resolutions has gone down, there is still a large portion of our society, almost half, that every year sits down and puts pen to paper and comes up with resolutions for their life and the new year. A recent survey reveals that about 34% say they will set a New Year's resolution related to their wallets and how they spend or save their money. 38% say they will set a new resolution related to their waistline. 47% say they will set a New Year's resolution related to their head, some goal of self-improvement. 31% say that they will set a New Year's resolution related to their heart, that is, some resolution involving a relationship or a dating goal. Unfortunately, only 8% actually make their resolution goals. And recently a book has come out by a man named Stephen Shapiro called Goal-Free Living, How to Have the Life You Want Now. And in his book he makes this argument. He says, speaking of all these statistics, these are all good areas to focus on in the new year. But the danger in this type of goal setting is that we become focused on where we are going rather than enjoying where we are now. We sacrifice today in the hope that a better future future will emerge only to discover that achievement rarely leads to true joy. Well, I don't have the salary of Shapiro, but frankly, it's all bunk. He's wrong. He is dead wrong. Why, you say? Well, he's fundamentally wrong. Well, I don't take that back. Maybe he's not wrong. Maybe he understands the issues all too well and just wants to sell books. Either way, what I just read and what his book is about is fundamentally wrong because the issue is not whether or not meeting those goals will give you joy. In fact, I would say he can't make that argument because the only people he can interview and can tell us whether or not that's true are those 8% that have actually succeeded in their goal. Instead, what he is focusing on is the other 92% who have failed and he is writing the book about them. And the truth of the matter is, it's not making and keeping goals that is inherently flawed. No. What is the problem is that making and keeping goals is inherently difficult. It's inherently difficult. It's a struggle. And it's actually the process of discipline and sacrifice that people don't like. That's why they fail. That's why they say making those goals never brings me true joy. That's because they never meet those goals. They give up before the end. Shapiro basically then appeals, I believe, to the lack of happiness that comes when we sacrifice. And he says, embrace it. Enjoy your laziness. Eat, drink, and be merry. Because if you put it off now, you won't be happy later. Now, frankly, that's the kind of conclusion that a non-Christian operating out of a non-Christian worldview uh, likely will come to. If there is nothing inherently hopeful about the future, if there is no goal to which everything is heading, then it's all about now. There's no future orientation to our lives. But as God's people, thinking God's way, hopefully along the lines of a Christian worldview, by worldview, the way in which we view the world, the way in which we make sense of reality, 
we will know the opposite is true. There is an end coming. There is a prize to be won. There is an eternity to be prepared for. That's why as Christians we are certainly free to set short-term goals, but we must always keep the bigger picture before us. We must always keep before us that all-encompassing, life-focusing goal for all that we do. We must strive in everything to live for the glory of God. Well, in past years, Christians have tried to do this by coming up with a, with a set of resolutions for their own life. The, the, the direction of which was that they would be able to live better for God's glory. But these resolutions were not ones that they would just they would change from year to year like ours very often do. No, they would start out young in life and they would set down a list with their own personal minds in life. They would know the sinfulness of their hearts. They would know where their temptations lie. And they would lay out this list of things that they would, be, that they would use on a daily or weekly basis to pursue godliness. So for instance, George Whitfield. You'll remember Whitfield was one of the great evangelists God used to bring about the great awakening in this country, one of the greatest revivals ever in the late 1700s. <coughs> Before that though, Wesley was a young man in his teens. And as he is beginning out, setting a course for ministry, he realizes the kind of life that he wanted to live. And so every night before he slept, he, he would pull out a list of resolutions that he made in his life. Really, it was a set of questions in which to ask himself, how did I do in these areas today? How well did I live my life for the glory of God? And at night, before he went to bed, he would be able to review the day and be able to repent of his sinful failings and plan to do better the next day. I won't read them all. They're listed in your sermon notes. But let me just, let me just give you a, 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 a flavor of, of these questions. Every night before he go to bed, he'll pull out his journal. Here's what he'd ask himself. Have I been fervent in prayer? Have I used stated hours for prayer? Have I used spontaneous prayer every hour? After or before every deliberate conversation or action, have I considered how it might tend to glorify God? After any pleasure, have I immediately given Thanks. Have I been zealous in undertaking and active in doing good that I could? Have I been meek, cheerful, affable in everything I said or did? Have I been proud, vain, unchaste, or enviable of all others? And he goes on and on and on. His, you see, his whole, his whole plan is to go back through and review the moment-by-moment the moment steps of his day. Because he realizes he only has one life. He's only given one life on this earth. And he knows that his calling is to live that life for God's glory. And so rather than just throw caution to the wind and say, well, I'll do my best, no, he needs a check because he knows his own heart. It's propensity to go away from living to the glory of God and pursue sinfulness. Of course, the king of resolutions is Jonathan Edwards. Over the course of a year between 1722 and 1723, Edwards was completing his schooling and ministerial training, and he was preparing for his life's work. And at age 19, he paused to reflect on the kind of man he wanted to be and the kind of life he wanted to live. And the result was 70 resolutions that he committed to reading once a week, every week of his life. And again, I will not, I will not read all 70. But here's a sampling. Number seven, resolved never to do anything that I should be afraid to do if it were the last act of my life. Resolved, number 14, never to do anything out of revenge. Number 20, resolved to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. 28, resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly and frequently that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of them. 
Number 58, resolved not only to refrain from an air of dislike, fretfulness, and anger in conversation, but to exhibit an air of love, cheerfulness, and benevolence. But the one that brings them all together is the first one. Number one, resolve that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and to my own good, profit, and pleasure. In the whole duration, without any consideration of the time, whether now or never, so many myriads of ages hence. Edward said, the all-encompassing banner of my life is, what can I do to most bring glory to God? And the result was all of these things. Not a moment of time wasted. Not, not, uh, he would keep meticulous writing. He, I mean, in, in some degrees, many of us are going to say, I, I could never do that. And you have to understand, Edwards was literally genius level. And, and you know that they're all kind of nuts a little bit. But he would literally, he, would, he began to keep records very early on. I ate this. This was the effects on my body. This is what I drank. These were the effects on my body. So he would realize some foods did not agree with him. And they would make him sick. They would give him headaches. You know what he would do? I'm never going to eat it again. Why? What happens if you have a headache? You lose time, don't you? I've got to take a pill. I've got to lay down. I've got to rest. Edward says, I don't have time for all that. I can't, be, I, can't be, I can't be bothered with rest like that. I need to pursue every moment of my life for the glory of God. And so unless God himself knocks me on my back sick, I don't have time to be wasted fooling around, making, letting myself get sick by, by uh, inappropriate and careless behavior. He was consumed with his passion to live for God's glory. Thus, in the end, though Edwards himself is known as a great, a great man of God, involved in the revival that took place, having pastored churches, been a missionary to, to Native Americans, uh, been the president of a college, a university, written theology books that still today stand the test of time. Nevertheless, Stephen Lawson says this, Though Edwards was intellectually brilliant and theologically commanding, his true greatness lay in his indefatigable zeal for the glory of God. He was distinguished as a man after God's own heart by his profound and exceptional spirituality. Now we may never be used of God like a Whitfield. may never be used of God like an Edwards or like Paul who we just saw back in the book of Acts. Nevertheless, there is a similar calling on all of our lives. That every moment of every day, of every week, and every year, we are to be living for the glory of God. And we must resolve in our minds to both display and pursue the glory of God in all things. In the coming weeks, we will zero in on various areas in our lives where we tend to be the weakest, I think, both looking at myself and looking at others in this country as Christians, where we tend to be the weakest in pursuing God's glory in our life. But this morning... We want to lay a foundation for all of these messages showing both why and how we should live for God's glory in all things. And basically I want our understanding, our meditations on that to flow out of one verse towards the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's verse 31. Verse 31. There Paul says, So, whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now here I want us to see two assertions and flowing from them one large point of application. So three things. First, we need to see that God should be glorified. God should be glorified. Paul tells the Corinthians, whatever they do, they should do all to the glory of God. There is an underlying assumption there. Behind that command is a foundational belief that God should be glorified. Why? Why should God be glorified? Well, frankly, because he is the most glorious being in the universe. He is God in the complete splendor of his holiness. 
His wisdom, His knowledge, His power, His presence, His mercy, His love, His righteousness. He has all these things in their completion, in their perfection. Any concept we have of these things finds its root in God Himself. By His very being, reality is defined. What is right and wrong, what is beautiful, what is hideous, how creation should function and work, all of these things are defined by the very nature of God and the revelation of His glory in creation. In the end, the Scriptures tell us, Hebrews 2, for Him and by Him all things exist. The passage we read this morning is our call to worship. Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Therefore, to him be glory forever. So like the sun that stands at the center of our solar system, holding the planets in check by its massive gravity, giving warmth and, and life by its radiant light, hanging ever majestic in the night sky, burning so bright that one cannot gaze directly at it for long, so stands God to all things. God exists as, as the blazing center of all reality. He imagined it, he created it, he sustains it, and he is at work to redeem it from the curse of sin. From him and through him and to him are all things. Therefore, to him be the glory forever. Because God is the central reality of all creation from the tiniest particle at the center of an atom to the largest star in the furthest reaches of space. He alone deserves to be glorified. He alone deserves to be praised. He deserves to have the worship, the totality of our worship of our lives. And we could, we could spend an entire we could spend an entire Sunday morning just reading how over and over and over again God says, I am doing this to bring glory to myself. I am doing this to bring glory to myself. I am doing this to bring glory to myself. And when God in the person of His Son takes on flesh, what does He say? I am doing this to bring glory to the Father. I am doing this to bring glory to the Father. And we continue to read to the apostles saying, this should be done to the glory of God. This should be done to the glory of God. There is, there is an endless amount of, of verses that say everything should be done to the glory of God. Nevertheless, the Bible doesn't leave it at should. The Bible doesn't simply say we should glorify God with our lives. Glorifying God is not just a good idea. Or what we should do if we're really spiritual. Glorifying God is a central calling of our lives. And Paul says when we fail to glorify God, it's sin. When we fail to glorify God, it's sin. In fact, he says all sin has at its root a failure to give God glory. Wrap your minds around that for a second. All sin has at its root a failure to give God glory. So you murder someone. It's a horrible offense. But at its core, why is it so sinful? Because you have destroyed an image bearer of God. You have failed to give him glory. You cheat on your spouse. A horrible offense. Why? At its core, because you have distorted the one thing that he has established among human relationships to reveal something of his glory, the love of Christ for his people. That's why marriage was created to be a picture of that. And you have just warped it and twisted it. You have deglorified God by your act. At the root of every sin stands a suppression of the glory of God. So in Romans 1, this is what he says. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth 
What truth do they suppress, Paul? For what can be known about God is plain to them because He has shown it to them. What has He shown them? For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. What did they do? For although they knew God, they did not honor Him, glorify Him as God, or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and foolish in their hearts, which were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul says God's judgment, his righteous fury against sin comes ultimately because humanity has failed to glorify God. We have failed to acknowledge him as creator and Lord. We have failed to acknowledge him as all wise and so follow our own path. We have failed to see his provision in our lives and so take credit for what ultimately he has given to us. We take what he has given to us and distort its beauty to our own sinful ends. In every way imaginable, we have failed to bring glory to God. And then the result, Paul says later in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. The result of not glorifying God. A sinful act in the core of our being is death. Physical and spiritual death. But to His glory, God chose to send His Son to take on flesh and die for the sins of rebels. He became their savior by taking their punishment. That's what we just celebrated at Christmas time. The birth of the savior who would restore rightfully the glory of God to the father. So all who would not try to stand before God on their own merit, but would look to Christ in faith, his sacrifice and his righteousness alone to be made right with God, God says to them he gives eternal life. To them comes forgiveness of sins and cleansing of sins. And so all the more God should be glorified for bringing salvation to sinners who refuse to give Him glory. The second assertion or the second point that we need to see here is that God should be glorified, but He should also be glorified by our lives. God should be glorified by our lives. Now here we need to just pause and get some context. As an aside, some of you have heard me say this before, it's always good by way of reminder because frankly... The way I preach, I hope that if I hope you pay attention because I'm also teaching you how to read the Bible for yourself. Okay? I will I will very often walk you through the interpretive process. Here's how I've made sense of this passage. And so the, the goal is not just to build you up and to edify you and to proclaim the gospel, but to show you very practically and daily how do you read your Bible. And you have to understand that you can't just take the verses out and make them say whatever you want to say. Okay, there's always a context in which the verses come. Verses are made up of sentences. Sentences are made up of paragraph. Paragraphs are made up of entire letters and books, right? And so all of that brings to bear on the specific verses. And as one person has said, a text without context becomes a pretext for a proof text. In other words, in other words, if you don't look at the context, you can pull a verse out and you can twist that thing and malign it and make it say whatever you want it to say and justify all manner of things. And so what's the context of our passage? The context is Paul talking about meat being sacrificed to idols and whether or not Christians should eat it. Some Christians have been saved out of the pagan cult and they would have considered this meat uh, 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 that had been sacrificed to idols and then been sold in the marketplace as off limits. 
Okay? You understand, when you go to the marketplace, um, you know, in, in the first century, it wasn't, it wasn't like today where everything's nice and cellophane wrapped and, you know, on uh, cardboard and everything else, or, or frozen. Uh, you know, you would have, you know, a, a temple to, you know, the, the, the goddess of silversmithing or whatever it was, and you would offer a sacrifice. Well, is there a god in the temple? Is there a goddess in the temple? No, there's a little statue, okay? Probably silver if it's silversmithing. The gods aren't going to eat anything, right? So you leave the thing there, and then what are you going to do with it? Let it go to waste? No, you want money for the temple. So then after you've gone through the ceremony, you pick this thing back up, take it out on the market, and sell it at a discounted price because it's not fresh, it's been cooked, and it needs to be eaten fairly soon. And some people would have been saved out of that silversmithing guild, out of that cult of worship to the goddess of silversmithing. And they would say, you know what, that meat offered to them was always associated with that. I can't in good conscience partake of that. I would feel like I'm still worshiping that goddess. And so the question comes up, what are Christians to do? Is this, is this the reality? If you back up to verse 23 of verse 10, we'll see what Paul says here. You'll see if you have certain translations appropriately, so we'll have two little phrases here in, in 23 in quotes. These are the things the Corinthians, not caring about their brothers who are being offended by this, they would just proclaim these slogans and do whatever they wanted to do in their sinfulness. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold on the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that which I have given thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Paul says at the end of the day, it's just meat. It's just meat. It's come from the Lord's hand as provision like everything else. You, you can eat it. But just because you can't eat it doesn't mean you should eat it. If it's going to offend a brother in Christ, if it's going to cause a lost person with whom you have a relationship to, to stumble and think you're worshiping a false god, Paul says, then don't eat. Why? Because you must live your life in light of this great reality. God is to be glorified in all things. That means for Paul, he was not about seeking his own advantage. He wasn't about always doing what was best for him all the time. Instead, he is constantly seeking to bring glory to God in all that he did, in part, so that sinners might be saved. But remember what Edward said. Do you remember the very first point? Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and to my own good Profit and pleasure. Now, what is Edward saying there? Because it sounds like, sounds like maybe he's not saying what, what, what Paul is saying. It sounds like he's got two different ideas here, and they don't stand together. But really what Edwards is saying is these two things are the same thing. To pursue God's glory ultimately is going to be best for our lives. It is going to be to our most good and pleasure. Do you get that? Glorifying God is not about walking through life with your head hung low, miserable. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, the opposite. The more you tend to give glory to God, the more joyful, the more satisfied, the more fulfilled you will find your life to be. And the question arises, how is this so? 
it should be clear that it is our duty as God's creation, let alone his people saved by the blood of Christ to give him glory. But how is it also our joy to give him glory? How is it our greatest good? Well, first of all, consider God doesn't need us to glorify him because he has an enormous ego. God doesn't need our help. In fact, God doesn't need anything at all that we would give to him. Instead, he deserves our worship. He deserves to be made much of. And again, when we do that, we get the joy. Think about it like this. This past week, I had the privilege of having not one, but two Christmas dinners. The first was on Christmas Eve at my mother-in-law's house, and it was an amazing spread. The next day at my grandmother's house, I went over there, Christmas meal again, amazing spread. I mean, you had turkey the first night, ham the next, the side dishes, the rolls, the desserts, everything a guy could want, and more. Now, after the blessing was said, and after the meal was set in front of me, I only had one duty. You know what it was? Eat the meal, right? That was my first and only duty. It was not my place to get up and say, oh, I, I should fix more food. Or I didn't bring anything. Let me go run out and get KFC and bring it back. Or, or uh, this doesn't taste right. Let me go into the kitchen and get more spices on it. That wasn't my duty, was it? That wasn't my place to do that. My place was to sit and eat. That was my duty. But was it a delight? You bet it was. You bet it was a delight. That's when people say, I'm putting off the diet till the New Year's resolution, January 1, and they go nuts in the holidays. It was a joyful thing. It wasn't drudgery. I didn't sit down and say, here we go again, another Christmas feast. I'm getting so sick of these things. I didn't say that, did I? I said, pass the sweet potato casserole, more coleslaw, fill up the turkey. Let's, where's the gravy? Okay? I mean, it was, it was awesome. The same is true when it comes to bringing glory to God. There will be times of sacrifice, times of denying yourself something that you want or think you deserve. But what we find is that what God offers is better. God may say, give this up for me. You may say, God, I really like that. God, I, I, I really want that. But understand, if God asks you to give it up, it's because he has something better for you. In Psalm 1611, David says to the Lord, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Did you catch that? Not a little bit of joy. Not more joy than I was expecting. There is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Paul says we are to glorify God with our lives. How we do that? The only one way is to receive what he offers to us. And the more we take from God, the more we are shown to be relying on Him, and the more He is shown to be a generous and a great God, both one who abounds in His delight to give to His people, and the one who abounds in the power to give what He promises to give. So you see what's going on here? Just like I would sit down at my mother-in-law's and say, I will gladly eat anything that you serve to me, and she gets glory for that. Why? Because she's a great cook! The more I eat, the more people say, that must have been a fabulous meal. So the more we give our lives over to God in service to Him, the more we're willing to give up for Him, the more we pray and ask and receive from Him, the more people say, that must be a glorious God. He must be a great and mighty and powerful God. And so here's the wonderful thing. God says, glorify me with your lives. That's what you're created for. Okay, God, but I'm scared. Don't be scared because with me is the fullness of joy. Pleasures forevermore. Glorify me, and you will never lack anything, including happiness. 
Well, those are our two foundational beliefs. Now, what about application? What does this look like practically? Here's the third point. God should be glorified. God should be glorified in our lives and God should be glorified in all things. Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He says, whatever you do, this gives us the ability to apply this to every area of life. In fact, in the context of the passage, what he's doing is taking this, this overarching principle, glorify God in everything, and he is applying it to this situation in Corinth. And because he's doing that, we are able to take this principle that he's applied here, pull it out again, and see it as an overarching principle for our life, and then begin to apply it in every area of our life. And that's what we want to think about doing. Because what we need to understand is, when I say God should be glorified in all things, don't just be little things out there, I mean in all things in our life. We have this very nasty habit of, of dividing up our lives and segmenting it like a worm. So we've got some parts that we call, they're the sacred parts. They're the, they're, they're the, tr- those are the things that God needs to be a part of. We don't pray to other gods. We just pray to the one true and living God. That's great. But then we say, my eating habits, or the way I play sports, or the way I talk to my wife. Those are the secular things. They don't really have anything to do with church, or how I do my job at work. No, 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 no. Bible doesn't, Bible doesn't do that. But there's no such thing as the, sec- the sacred and the secular in that sense. It's all sacred. All of your life is to be lived under God, for God, and through God. Isn't that what Paul said? From him and through him and to him are all things. Not just some things, not just some churchy things. Many of you will recognize the name Johann Sebastian Bach. He is considered one of the greatest classical composers of all time. But what you may not know, he was also a devout Christian. And early on, he began to write three little letters at the end of every single one of his compositions. S-D-G. Soli Deo Gloria, the Latin phrase for to God alone be the glory. And this was not just on his incredible masterpieces of of religious content like St. Matthew's Passion. If you've never listened to that, borrow mine or get it from the library, do something, but you you should listen to that. It is is just a masterpiece. But he also had silly little compositions like the Coffee Cantata. Okay, that's one for us to listen to sometime, brother. It's about this daughter who, who uh, wants to get married like all good German girls at that time, but the father says, you drink too much coffee, you're not getting married until you get up the coffee. Because coffee was not a good German drink. Beer was. Drink more beer, not as much coffee. Uh, you know, go figure, okay? And so, they, so they're, they're singing this in this little, you know, opera, this silly operetta, you know. And so, you know, um, she says, okay, fine, fine, I'll, I'll marry a husband. But then she secretly says, let it be known that in the marriage contract, it will, be, it will be said that my husband will let me drink as much coffee as I want. And, of course, the narrator comes in and sings, the mother loved coffee, the grandmother loved coffee, how can the daughter be denied her coffee? Oh, it's silly, right? I mean, it's just fun. But what did Bach put at the bottom? Soli, Deo, Gloria. What was he saying? He said, every part of my life is lived for the glory of God. It doesn't matter whether I'm writing church music or writing this silly coffee cantata. It's all for his glory. Family, leisure, friends, work, money, church. There is no distinction in how we live our life. There is one life under God, and it should be lived to his glory. What does that mean for us practically? What what will it look like practically to do this? Let me give one example because it's all I have time for. Taking out the garbage. How many of you love to take out the garbage? One. Yeah, he does because he gets to help. But most of us think, ah, taking out the garbage? What what is the point? Let me tell you something. In all seriousness, you're to take out the garbage to the glory of God. 
It's part of that all thing. We don't say, well, take out the garbage. That's it. No, no. You, from drinking orange juice to putting on your boots to taking out the garbage, whatever it is, you do it to the glory of God. So you say, how do I do it? How do I take out garbage to the glory of God? Well, I would say three things. First, I think it's just three. You could probably come up with others. Think about what having garbage means. What's in the garbage? Leftover germs. Yes, yes, thank you. And what do the germs and bacteria grow on? Food, right? Leftover food that you have thrown away because you have too much. In Africa, no, nothing gets thrown away. Even the, even the peels of, of, the, of the fruits and vegetables get thrown to the dogs to eat because they don't waste anything. Here, we throw all kinds of food away all the time. Why? Because we have an abundance of food. Well, what else do we throw away? Junk mail, right? I mean, that has its own bag sometimes. Why? Because for all of its faults in this country, even at its worst, we have a superior infrastructure, an economic system that allows us to have jobs and more money that we know what to do with. So people are sending us things saying, spend your money here, spend your money here, spend your money here. We could go on, but you get the point. We pick up that bag of trash and we don't say, great, i got to take this stinky thing out. We say, look at the leftovers of the abundance that God has given to me. I mean, you go to another country, there's no garbage. You don't, there's no garbage. There's nothing. And here I've got, I've got four bags of it, especially on Christmas morning, right? All the boxes from the kids' toys. All the stuff we've been able to, to, to bless our kids with, our spouses, with our families with. All of this uh, is a result of and evidence to the abundance with which God has blessed us. And so we stop and we acknowledge that and we thank Him for that and we give Him glory for that. Second, be reminded that you're actually walking out the garbage to the curb, to the side of the road. You're not entitled to walking. You're not entitled to intelligent thought or nerve and muscle coordination. Nevertheless, because of God's blessing, you have all of those things. There are people all the time in all the world in this city who suffer from paralyzing accidents and debilitating diseases. But you've been blessed by God with a mental ability and physical strength to actually pick up trash and walk it to be taken away by somebody else. You don't even have to drive it to the dump yourself. Again, you pause and you thank God for those things. You give Him the glory for those things. And then, finally, you purpose to do the task well. Remembering all of those things, you don't do it with grumbling and complaining. You don't get to half of the driveway and say, I'm tired, and sling it to the end so the bag flings open. No, you do it in a way that doesn't cause the neighborhood to be messy or to be an annoyance to the garbage men. Instead, you take the trash out like nobody else on the block. People envy how well you take the trash out. They said, look at that. It's all stacked up nice and neat. It's easy for the garbage man to pick it up. But yeah, that, that, they're, the best, they're the best neighbor when it comes to taking out the trash. What was once a thoughtless, thankless task suddenly becomes a means of glorifying God in your life. Instead of grumbling and complaining, you've just worshipped your heavenly Father. And that's just taking out the trash. Begin to apply that kind of thinking in all manner of things. Your family life, how you speak to your spouse, how you spend time with them, how much time you spend with them, how you love and dis discipline and disciple your children. Apply it to your work life. How hard do you work? How do you relate to your coworkers? How do you spend the money you earn? Apply it to your church life. How well do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? How much time do you devote to encouraging them in their walk with God? How do you go about serving in to and through the church? The possibilities are endless because whatever we do, it is to be done to the glory of God. When Edwards began writing his resolutions, he began with a sort of prefatory statement that included this line. I cannot do anything without God's help. 
The pursuit of God's glory in our life should be our life's great work. It should be the overarching, focus-producing principle that motivates us to endure hardship and hard work and life lived to its fullness. But, because ultimately, it's one thing you were created to do. But you're never going to achieve that without God's help. You will never ultimately glorify God the way you should without first obtaining the strength and the wisdom and the discernment and the love that God himself desires to give to us. Otherwise, we will be consumed with sin, selfishness, bitterness, anger, laziness, all things that he does not desire to be a part of our lives. Nevertheless, God has given us the grace that we need to wage war against the blackest pits of our hearts that we might glorify him with our lives. And so from the moment our heads rise from the pillows, our knees should be down on the ground as we not only give glory to God for another day of life, but call out for His grace. The life we are going to live this day might be lived well, not for our sakes, but for His. That in being given another day of life, we will fulfill ultimately the purpose for which we have been given life to bring glory to God. We pray for grace that we might know the fullness of joy that comes and glorifying God with every moment of our lives. And so folks, over the next few weeks, I, we're just literally scratching the surface on some areas. But what I want us to do is to go in this year, if it's never happened before, this year we say, I am marking today the 28th of December, 2008, I am drawing a line because up to this point, I have been playing a game with my life. I have failed to acknowledge that I am a created being, creating the image of God to reflect glory back to Him. And now, from this moment forward in my life, whether you're 7 or 70, I will live it to the glory of God. And perhaps you'll be like a Whitfield or an Edwards and you'll begin to, to write down resolutions for your life. Or perhaps you will just maintain this one overarching resolution. And work it out practically in whatever way you can. Every moment of my life, how is this to be done for the glory of God? How is this to be done for the glory of God? How is this to be done for the glory of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that you have given us life this day. Father, we rejoice that more than life, you have given us life abundant and free in Christ. Father, I pray that we would not squander our life, that we would not waste it, Father, that we would not allow it to escape like sand through our fingers. But, Father, we would take hold of our life. That we would purpose in our hearts with resolve that comes only by your grace to live for your glory alone in all things. Father, we know this will be to our greatest good. And so, Father, we pray that both today and in the coming weeks, you will cement yourself in our minds and in our hearts as the one true great vision in our lives. Father, this is our prayer this morning. Amen. In response to the message this morning, I invite you to stand and to sing, Be Thou My Vision.